When you gather with others, do you often find those events somewhat disappointing or perhaps leaving you wishing for something more? On this episode, Priya Parker challenges us to take action to make our gatherings more meaningful and transformative. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 395. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Most all of you as part of our community are in the business, and even if not in the business, certainly in your personal lives, of gathering people together. All of us really are in the place where we are part of gatherings, and many of us in this community gather people uh, formally and informally within our organizations, within our industries, professional conferences, and certainly personally. And yet, it is a skill that most of us have never really received any direction or training or even mentorship on, on how to gather people effectively. It is very much an art. Today's guest is someone who has uh, done a tremendous amount of work and really developed an expertise in the art of gathering people. I am so thrilled to welcome Priya Parker to the show today. She is a facilitator, strategic advisor, and founder of Thrive Labs, at which she helps activists, elected officials, corporate executives, educators, and philanthropists create transformative gatherings. She works with teams and leaders across technology, business, the arts, fashion, and politics, to clarify their vision for the future and build meaningful, purpose-driven communities. She is passionate about helping people create gatherings in their work and life that are transformative and meaningful for the people in them. Priya has worked on race relations on American college campuses and on peace processes in the Arab world, Southern Africa, and India. She is a founding member of the Sustained Dialogue Campus Network. She has also been appointed a member of the World Economic Forum, Global Agency Council on Values Council, and the New Models of Leadership Council. And she is the author of the new book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. Priya, I am so glad to meet you. I'm so happy to meet you. Thank you for having me. This is such a beautiful book. As I got into it, I was just so pleasantly surprised at how much there was to learn, and also my own ignorance (laughs) of this topic. And (laughs) I, I was really struck By this quote at the beginning of the book, you write, As much as our gatherings disappoint us, we tend to keep gathering in the same tired ways. Most of us remain on autopilot when we bring people together, following stale formulas, hoping that the chemistry of a good meeting, conference, or party will somehow take care of itself, that thrilling results will magically emerge, and it's almost always a vain hope. What is it about our gatherings that tend to disappoint us? We tend to conflate category with purpose. And because of that, for decades, we've been told that if you get the stuff right of gatherings, if you get the food and the drink right, if you get the AV equipment you know, right, if you get the deck right, that the rest will take care of itself. And that's just not true. Um, I can tell you as a, as a group conflict resolution facilitator, which is my, my training, 
that human connection and the the elements of a gathering that create meaning for people rarely happen through the proxy of things. They happen primarily through conversation. And yet we spend so much of the time when we think about hosting or guesting on kind of getting the logistics of, of everything in place and then kind of hoping for the best for the rest of it. And you point out in the book that when the conversations happen about being intentional about the gathering space, it tends to be a logistical conversation. It's food, it's what does the room look like? And it's not thinking about the space. And the chapter of the book that really launched out to me was the chapter that's titled, Don't Be a Chill Host. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if you could define for us, what is chill (laughs) in this scenario? And why is it an issue? So I I think that one of the reasons our gatherings don't take off is in part because they're kind of vague, they're diluted. You know, the all hands staff meeting, or frankly, the cocktail hour or the, the networking night, there's kind of a focus, but nobody really knows the specific element of the focus, and it's certainly not designed for it. And one of the cultural elements that I've seen that, that tends to have a lot of our gatherings you know, not be as, as strong as they could is there is this prevailing idea, I would even say ideal, to be, quote unquote, chill. You know, I'm chill, you're chill, it's all chill, like, everything goes, everything's allowed here. And it's particularly true, I think, among millennials to broadly look like you don't care. This is a very dangerous thing for hosting. And in part because gathering is a form of power. You're bringing people together for a very specific purpose, hopefully. And guests, if they're coming, are kind of in your hands. And we tend to underhost because in part, I think we're not as clear as we could be about the purpose of our gathering, but also because we've misunderstood what it means to be generous to our guests. We think that by kind of leaving them alone, we're being generous. But actually, you know, chill is selfishness, masking as generosity. We don't want to look like we care too much, or we don't want to you know, offend, or we don't want to look too controlling. But that's actually what we think, you know, we're thinking about what people think about us rather than thinking about how do I actually help this group connect in meaningful ways. One of the things you point out is that when you have this conversation often about stepping into this role as a host, that you're often greeted with hesitancy. And I've heard you say that when we deny our power, it's very dangerous. Tell me more about that. We tend to be under the false assumption that power is, first, something bad, and second, something that if I don't look at it, it's not there. (laughs) And in the book, in The Art of Gathering, I start this chapter with a scene from a a course that happens every year with a leadership professor named Ron Heifetz. And he starts his class by standing or sitting on a chair in front of the class. And this is a shopping day at at the Kennedy School, which means it's when people are coming to visit you know, to see if they're actually interested or not. And most professors stand up and start talking about the class. He does something different. He sits there and he stares into space. And after a few minutes, you kind of, you know, wait for the class to start. Nothing happens. Wait for the class to start. Nothing happens. And he's, you know, on purpose, you realize later, kind of abdicating his role as professor. He doesn't launch into the script. And when he isn't playing his role as professor, students aren't really sure what to do. And you know, you kind of play it out and people start arguing or people start whispering, people start giggling. One person says, hey, maybe this is the class. Another one shushes them. 
And, and basically over the course of five minutes, the class starts talking and kind of starts controlling one another. And eventually he stands up and, you know, kind of dings the glass and says, welcome to adaptive leadership. And the entire course is basically looking at what actually happens in group dynamics and with leaders when you have to adapt to contexts in which there isn't a pre-assigned script. And one of the things I think he shows so beautifully is that just because in that context of a classroom, a teacher doesn't kind of hold his or her own power, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's no power in the room. It just gets spread among individuals that then have to navigate their relationship with one another without a quote-unquote, authority at the head that's seen as a legitimate use of dictating how the class should go. And the same is true for all of our gatherings. So, you know, another example that I love is when President Obama was in office, he became aware of a study that I believe was popularized also through Harvard Business School case studies that men tended to get disproportionately called on in Q&A sessions and women tended to not raise their hand as much. And he wanted to counterbalance this pattern. And so he would, towards the end of his administration, whenever he'd have public and sometimes off-the-record Q&A sessions, and this would be with labor unions in Indiana or with his press corps sometimes or with school classrooms, once it came to the Q&A part of the, of the session, he'd say, okay, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it boy, girl, boy, girl. And what that basically meant was he would ask, like a man would raise a question, and then, if, and then he would call in a woman, and then he'd call in a man, and then he'd call in a woman. And if no woman raised his hand, he would wait. And I love this example. You can agree or disagree with it, or you can think it's ludicrous. But the reason I love it is because he understands that in that context, he wanted to counterbalance a norm that for whatever reason, you know, men's voices were heard more than women's voices. He wanted to counterbalance a norm and he used his authority to create a temporary pop-up rule in order to see if in those contexts, something, you know, you could create a, what I call a temporary alternative world. You said the word purpose a couple of times, and we were fortunate to have Mamie Canfer Stewart on the show last year talking about establishing purpose when putting together meetings. And it's so critical to this in that purpose. And I think power plays an element in this too. And the thing that I'm conscious of that you sent to me even before our conversation was that you need to enforce something that people have bought into and not just be controlling or to step into power in order to be controlling. Thread that for me a bit. How does how do you see that being distinct? First, I love Mamie's work. I interviewed her for The Art of Gathering, and, and she uses a very specific term, which is desired outcome. And when she works with executives or companies, she always asks that question, which is not just what is your purpose, but what is your desired outcome? And she tries to get you to move away from process. I would add to that and say that a purpose of a gathering begins to be meaningful and perhaps has the potential to be transformative when it is specific and it is disputable. And what I mean by disputable is not everybody agrees with it. And the second thing is we tend to, because we're so focused on logistics, we think the invitation is kind of a carrier for logistics, like date, time, and place. But actually, your invitation is your first opportunity to prime your guests to help them understand what is it that they're saying yes to. You know, so for rather than having an Outlook calendar block, you know, 12 people's time, give your event a name. I'll give an example from a non-work context that I love. There's a writer named Jancy Dunn who was trying to figure out how to host a more meaningful dinner party. And she, she called me up and I think she thought I was going to say, like, put the wine glass here or put the fish knives here or, 
you know, <laughs> I, you know kind of focus like, like up her up her quote unquote hosting game. And when I asked her is what is a need in your life right now around which if you got specific people together, they might help you address. And she thought, and she said, well, I'm a worn out mom. I recently was at a friend's house. She cut me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and triangles, gave me some berry bee carrot sticks. I ate it and I burst into tears. And I said, why did you burst into tears? And she said, because I realized in that moment, it'd been, it's been a long time since I was in a role in which someone else was taking care of me. He said, great, build on it. She said, okay, what if I hosted a dinner party for my other worn out moms and myself? I said, great, give it a name. And she called it the worn out mom's hootenanny. <laughs> nice. And I said, give it a rule to our earlier conversation. And she said, if you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. And then she actually hosted this and she sent it out an email. She, it, they did takeout, so it was embodied. And part of what is kind of profound about this example, as simple as it is, is she understood that you're, by priming your guests and giving them a specific name, you're giving them a sense of what is the purpose of this thing, that when they actually say, yes, I'm coming, they know what they're saying yes to. So when you walk in and all of a sudden you're getting a slap on the wrist for talking, or you have to take a shot for you know, talking about your kids, you already know that that's kind of the purpose of the night. So a lot of times we have kind of coups at, at, a, at a gathering when people say, hey, I didn't sign up for this because we have under-hosted our guests from the moment of the invitation to help them actually understand what is the purpose of this? Who is this for? Who is this not for? And this is a real invitation and you have the power to say yes or no. And tell me about the word disputable. How does that fit into that? Well, you know, you can kind of look at purpose or mission statements of companies. And I, I believe it's the same principle, which is if everybody agrees with your purpose statement or your mission statement, then you're not probably saying anything. Mm. right? Like we want to have the world be a better place. Who doesn't want to have the world be a better place? You know, what is better? Like which world for whom? And similarly, disputable basically helps us make decisions. So part of beginning to have a gathering where there's a there there is also about understanding who should be there and who shouldn't. And when you have a specific you know, purpose, it becomes a lot clearer who or who may not fulfill that purpose and therefore who you should invite and frankly, who you should not invite and who you should say no to even if they want to come. I was working with an organization where they were hosting a global offsite for their company. And it was a new CEO. And it was the first time they'd actually gathered everybody in person. And, uh, and it was kind of this CEO's sort of coming out party in a way. It was the first time that hundreds of the employees and leaders, you know, in multiple tiers of the organization were going to be able to spend time with this person. And at the very last minute, the founders who had been, you know, effectively the leaders for the, you know, the last few decades kind of casually mentioned like, oh, we'll be there. And, you know, I'm external, I'm a facilitator, and I strongly protested (laughs) Mm. internally with the planning group saying they absolutely can't be there. And instinctively and kind of intuitively, the planning group felt that, you know, everybody got very nervous when the founder sent that email and it felt like, oh, you know, but they couldn't really articulate as to why they felt that way. And in part, because we've been told for eons, the more the merrier, we don't trust our instinct when something doesn't feel right, it, when it has to do with inclusion or exclusion. I said, okay, what is the purpose of this gathering? It is for the CEO to be seen, right? To come out on their own fate, correct. To create a new vision, to, to step out from you know, a specific era, to, to be seen on their own terms. 
if you have the two founders kind of sitting in the back room, first of all, everybody's aware of it. Second of all, there's other sources of power in the room. And third of all, you actually, from the CEO perspective, it's very different kind of cutting a new vision in a world in which you fully have the reins versus when you kind of have an audience of you know two in the back room. But we don't often pause enough to pause and say, what is the purpose? And not just who will fulfill this purpose, but more interestingly, who might threaten this purpose? And begin to have the confidence, but more than the confidence, have the legitimacy to say no. This is the first time you and I are talking, and you don't specifically say this in the book, but I just have this warm and beautiful sense of you being such a welcoming, inclusive person. And I think most of the people who are part of this community also feel that way and want to establish that in organizations. And yet I love the distinction that you bring in your work of being warm and inclusive is a wonderful place to be. And yet, if it doesn't serve the purpose of that particular gathering, sometimes excluding for purpose is not only appropriate, but is the right decision, isn't it? Absolutely. And in part because when people are in front of you, right, you're, you're actually hosting your offsite or your dinner party or whatever it is, and somebody brings an extra person or they show up, to in person, if you're a good host, you're going to host for the person who's the most outside the center, right? You host to the periphery. You host, I mean, what a good host is in person is making sure the person who least feels included is most included, right? And that is absolutely your job in the moment. That said, in part because of that, the person who's sort of the furthest from the center should be a, should be a design choice. And so what I'm arguing for in this, in, this, in this way of inviting is to think ahead of time very specifically about who should and shouldn't be there, and then upholding it by realizing that it's purposeful, not personal. You know, I purposely, in the book, look at both public and private, social and professional gatherings because I'm really interested in the life of groups. I define a gathering as anytime three or more people come together. And so it's not just one-on-one, but it's really how do you influence groups? And I think I I focus on personal and social gatherings in part because sometimes they're easier to see. So I have a friend who a couple of years ago got an invitation from his grandmother to attend her 80th birthday. Now, there's a peculiar element of this invitation. It basically, she, this grandmother said, you know, please come visit me. It was in Germany for my 80th birthday. No spouses or children. Basically, leave your spouses and children home. So this was to basically her grandchildren, who were all adults, and the majority had spouses and children. And as you can imagine, there was a bit of an uproar (laughs) of how can, you know, how can granny not only dictate her terms, but also include the people who, again, are the furthest outside from the family as it is. I mean, I can see having an in-law gathering, but to say in-laws aren't invited me, what is this? So, of course, he told me the story and I was (laughs) very intrigued. That said, you know, all of the cousins basically decided, you know what, it, you know, she's getting older, let's go. It's, it's this one time, they go. And I get a phone call, you know, when he gets back and I ask him, you know, how, how was it? And he says, you know what, it was actually kind of magical. And I said, why? And he said, well, the wisdom that, you know, that my grandmother had and the foresight was we actually as cousins have never spent time together alone as adults. And we hadn't figured out what it means to be adult cousins in relationship to each other as cousins, not just from childhood memories. And it was this beautiful, slow time that was a total and complete gift. Oh. And it was beautiful talking about it with him and with his wife, 
you know, who was kind of amused by the whole thing as well. And part of what he said is this isn't necessarily going to be an every year tradition. You know, maybe it will be, maybe it won't. And it doesn't have to be. But the power of gathering specifically and disputably is that you're creating a temporary alternative world that people can decide whether they want to come to that serves a purpose. And I think part of what I'm arguing for in this book, particularly as leaders, as managers, as business owners, is time is short. I don't think you should actually gather more. I think we need to gather better. And sometimes that means gathering less. But basically to realize that if you're going to use people's time to make sure you have a clear, specific, purposeful reason for it, and then that you enforce it once people show up. Yeah. The term that I really love that you brought in this book is generous authority. And it's not controlling to be controlling. And I'm not even sure controlling is the right word, but it's stepping into that power in a very intentional way. And the thing that's really interesting to me is how the benefits that come out of that. And there's three key areas that you really highlight that I think are important for us to be mindful of when thinking about doing this. One of them is using authority for the protection of your guests, which when I read that, I was like, oh, that's an interesting first thing to mention. But you, you really make a strong case for this. Protect, connect, and equalize. So protect. <laughs> we assume that if we don't kind of you know, own our power or own the power in the room, that, that it will be a power-free gathering. And that, again, is not true. Anytime, I mean, two or people, two people come together or three people, you have to figure out how you're going to make decisions. So if you define power as the ability to make decisions, I mean, and that's just, just simply. And if in a family that could be, let's go out to dinner tonight, are we going to Chinese or Italian? How does a family figure that out, right? Is it by vote? Does the father always choose? Does the youngest daughter always get her way? Like, who in a specific moment has an ability to make a decision of how we're going to spend the next minute of our time together, mm. right? And part of the generosity of a host is to limit people having to figure that out themselves. So Ed Schein, whose work I adore, and I think you've had him on the show, he's yes. considered the father of organizational design. If you read some of his kind of canonic work, he talks about in his research of tea groups in the 70s and 80s, he says, every group comes down to kind of two forces that at the beginning of a life of a group, they have to figure out. And that is the group's relationship to authority within the group and the group's relationship to intimacy within the group. So who's going to be in charge here and for what? How are we going to make decisions? You know, if, if two people are in conflict, who wins? If two people, the distant point of views, how do we kind of move forward? And then intimacy, how much of myself am I going to show? What are my weaknesses? What are my vulnerabilities? Do I feel safe here? And I love this framing because it helps us see that both are forces and both are elements that a group has to figure out. But also as a host, particularly if you're getting people together for a short amount of time, it's a waste of time unless the purpose is for the group to figure out their relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. But it's a waste of time to kind of have the group figure that out for themselves. This is not a book about teaming. It's a book about gathering. And what I mean by that is some teams gather a lot, but we are gathering all of the time and often in contexts where people aren't a team. They're not an embedded team where you've spent a lot of time setting norms and creating psychological safety. These are one-offs, right? A back-to-school night or, again, a dinner party or a conference where you're bringing together you know, clients and perhaps partners and perhaps staff 
they're one-time events. Maybe they're repeated over you know, every year. But because of that, it's selfish to have your guests figure everything out themselves. Again, unless the purpose is that and then host an unconference. But usually we deflect and we abdicate our role of kind of authority, not out of conscious choice, but out of either fear or a lack of realization that we're doing it. One of the groups I love that gathers, I think, very well is called House of Genius. They're a group that was, or I guess a process that was founded by two guys in Boulder, Colorado. And they realized, and again, going to this idea that gatherings, that if you don't create your own sense of purpose and rules, the, the dynamic of whoever's in the room will, will perpetuate. So they realized they'd go to these conferences or these workshops where everybody would kind of talk about all the wonderful things that were happening to them or how great their startup was or how, you know, basically everything's great. And they realized like, this is not helpful. Hmm. Everybody's walking around, you know, sales pitching each other. And so they created this gathering called House of Genius where they'd invite three entrepreneurs who needed help. So the, so again, to Ed Shine's authority versus intimacy, where like intimacy was a precursor to the gathering. We are asking you not to say all the things are going well. We're asking you to choose one challenge in your company or business that you think other people might be able to give you insight on. Then they structure this process where people show up. They're all invited specifically for their background. There's a diverse background. There's usually 12 people that constitute a house. There's a moderator or a facilitator from the house of genius. And when you walk in, there's usually 20 or 30 minutes of milling around time, and there's two rules. One is you can't talk about work, and you can't reveal what you do for a living. Oh. Super interesting rule. And I've, you know, I went for research a couple of times, and it's kind of hilariously awkward because you, I mean, at least the ones that I went to, all kind of dead ends ended up very quickly in realizing we couldn't answer a question because we were going to answer it based on work. I mean, in my case, people were like, why are you interested in this? And I, I realized, well, I can't say I'm researching for a book that's talking about work. So you kind of like, you back up in conversation and, you know, where'd you go for a vacation? Or <laughs> we, and, and what the, I love about this rule is it makes us realize, particularly in an American context, how bad we are about talking about things that are interesting that have nothing to do with work. Then you go in after half an hour and there's rules. And I think it's usually about 45 minutes per entrepreneur. And it's a very structured process. The entrepreneur gets about five minutes to present a core challenge, enough context. Then you go around and everybody gets a chance to ask clarifying questions. And then they get to present again. And then at the end, each person gives a specific piece of feedback. Or, you know. And basically, we get to look under the hood. Now, what's interesting, so why can't you talk about your work? Because the founders realized that either consciously or unconsciously, we tend to prioritize those people either from specific professions or who we think can give us money or you know, who we think are you know, relevant to the work and tend to ignore basically advice in a room that we think might contextually be un irrelevant. So if you know, a venture capitalist, and you know they're a venture capitalist, gives you one piece of advice and a you know, nurse gives you another piece of advice in a room. Part of the problem of the dynamic is you might over-index on the, on the banker's advice, even though the nurse is actually saying, you know, the solution. Yeah. And so the house of genius creates these temporary rules. And then at the very end, they do what they call their big reveal, where everybody actually says what they do, because they realize that they're wanting to counterbalance a very strong norm. First, the idea of stump speeches and elevator pitches and the idea that's like, you know, if you're going into an entrepreneur context, only talk about all the amazing things that you're doing. And then second, that the idea that we bias ourselves and that genius can come from anywhere, but we tend to block where we think it can come from. 
And so they create this specific, you know, disputable sense of rules that protect their guests from each other, that connect their guests to the purpose and to each other, and that temporarily equalize their guests. And that, and that last rule actually, interestingly, also equalizes their guests for, you know, two hours while they go around and give advice, and then they reveal at the end. Yeah, it's fascinating how when I, I was thinking about this in your work and how often when we enter a space where we do not have a connection with someone, that those indicators of power emerge very quickly. We talk about a role, we talk about the type of work we do. And when you intentionally set that aside, or a host sets that aside, how it opens up a very different opportunity for a dynamic, and like you said, to share ideas without as much of that, um, the politics, the power, those things that are often laden onto it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to realize that whatever, whenever you're bringing people together, if you don't put a specific purpose and structure, and the structure can be invisible, it can be subtle, it can be playful. I'm not arguing for control. I'm arguing for thoughtful structure. The group will come up with a dynamic and a set of norms themselves, and they may or may not serve your purpose. And so if and as you're you know, deciding to bring people together to think very first, what is, why am I doing this? And then second, how can I most set up my guests for success that they might contribute to that purpose? Another example um, of a conference I looked at is called Opportunity Collaboration. And I spoke with the CEO, Topher Wilkins, um, because I'd heard from a number of people that it was a conference that was very thoughtfully done. Um, They host every year in Mexico, at least they used to. and they are an organization and a conference that's trying to basically um, have breakthroughs in people who are with people in the field that's interested in poverty solutions, you know, international development. And one of the and they invite donors and grantees, so you know, philanthropists or people, philanthropies, you know, basically the the, the money people and then the recipients. Uh-huh. And as you might imagine, there's a huge hierarchy and there are huge power dynamics that are completely, you know. In, in the field, you know, throughout, both systemically and also in individual one-on-one interactions. And, and Opportunity Collaboration realizes this. And Topher's point in his interview with me, he said, I think not only is it, you know, bad, I, I, you know, and to this point, not all hierarchy is bad at all. Like, the way you organize, to Ed Shine's point, the way you organize your group should serve its purpose. And in this case, Topher Wilkins believes that this hierarchy is actually preventing their collective purpose, which is reducing poverty, in part because of all of the kind of the dynamics that happen when a grantee doesn't want to kind of, for example, share what's actually happening on the ground for fear of, you know, not getting money the next year or whatever the dynamics might be. So the opening day of the conference, they have a town hall where they try to temporarily first name the power dynamics and then second, try to temporarily equalize them. They do role playings, they do things like a grantee will, t- they'll switch roles or the grantee will talk about what it's like to be a grantee. And they'll say things like, I remember the quote I remember is, um, going to you all is like going, it feels like going to the gynecologist. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so temper or, or a grantor saying, you know, honestly, like it's, it's actually kind of scary having all of this power. And what I love about this example is they're not changing the systemic or structural context. And they realize that, but what they are doing is providing a temporary alternative space where everybody in that context can realize that they play roles and they're inviting them to temporarily step out of that role and collectively look at this problem that they all care about. One of the things that I really love about your writing 
and your work is that you are very generous in sharing your own struggles and your own failures in gatherings as well. And as I read through the book, I was thinking of so many places where I've erred and seen others err in this too. (laughs) And uh, for those listening to this thinking, gosh, there's so much here. Where do I start? When you get that question of where to begin, that very first step, what's the invitation you find is helpful that gets people moving in being more intentional? No matter how obvious it seems on the surface, don't skip asking, what is the purpose of this gathering? People often say, what do you mean? The pur- isn't the purpose of a wedding to get married? No, you can go to city hall to get married. Like, Why do you want to specifically bring people together in your lives? You know, is this for your, to honor your parents? Is this to bring together more of the people you hope to are part of your future lives? Is this to honor more of your past? I mean, weddings are a great example. A lot of the arguments that happen around, you know, guest lists and who should be there, they're proxy wars. And they're proxy wars around purpose, which is who is this wedding for first? And the same goes to back to school nights or the first day of class or, you know, board meetings to, to not skip the purpose, whether you're hosting or even more importantly, if you're part of a planning session or something's being assigned to you, to not be afraid to ask, hey, what's the purpose of this gala? I know, I know I'm supposed to help plan it. What's the purpose of this offsite? And to keep, keep drilling down until the purpose is specific, makes sense, and helps you make decisions. It's a message we keep hearing again and again on the conversations on the show. Maybe it was an example of that as well, as you mentioned, desired outcomes of getting clear in advance of what do we want to accomplish? What's the reason for doing this? And if that's clear, a lot of the other pieces start to fall into place. If that's not clear, then I think the thing that really strikes me as so now obvious, having read the book, is when we leave that to others, it never comes together. <laughs> in part because they, I mean, at, at the best intention, they have no idea what you're, <laughs> what you're hoping for. Yeah, you know, they're not yeah, mind readers. Yeah. Well, there's, there's just so much here. We're just scratching the surface on your work. A couple of invitations I would make is certainly for those of you like me who this is really enlightening. Um, I hope that you'll take a moment to check out The Art of Gathering and dive in further. And Priya, I believe one of the places you have gathered folks is on Instagram for some of the thinking you're doing. Would you share more about that? Um, sure. I have I, I Instagram. I don't know if that's a verb, but I've started <laughs> <is> now. to... <laughs> I've started to kind of reflect more aloud on Instagram around various gatherings that I either see and particularly kind of public gatherings of the of the moment and think aloud around why something works or or a you know a risk that somebody shares or whether it's a head of state or a person running a soccer team that is a place I play a lot and I love to hear people's examples of gatherings that you're hosting and and you know if I would say to your listeners if think about one gathering that you're hosting in the next month or that you know maybe after this you you think you might want to host and yeah. encourage you to do something bold and courageous and specific and and tell me about it. Oh fabulous. Well thank you for that invitation. Of course check out the book. Priya Parker is the author of The Art of Gathering: How We Meet and Why It Matters. Priya, thank you so much for this beautiful work. Thank you for having me. If you know someone who has a gathering of any significance coming up soon, this is a great conversation to pass along to them. Priya, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. A number of related episodes to today's conversation, if you found it useful, I recommend episode 254 as well. 
Use power for good and not evil. Great compliment to this conversation. Dacker Keltner was my guest. He's the founder of the Greater Good Center out at Berkeley. His book, The Power Paradox, examines uh, some of the misconceptions that we have about power, both good and bad, as we talked about in this conversation. If we are willing to look at the good sides of power while being mindful of the challenges that power brings to all of us when we step into power, episode 254 will be very useful to you. I also would recommend episode 344, Have Conversations That Matter. My guest was Celeste Headley. On that episode, we talked in depth on really how to create more meaningful conversations with others. It is a great compliment to this conversation because once you are in the midst of that gathering, if you have the courage to lean in to have conversations that matters, we talked about a bit today, that is a wonderful framework to follow episode 344 with Celeste Headley. Also useful to you is episode 358, how to plan meetings that get results. We mentioned the work of Mamie Canfer stewart And Mamie's work, of course, centered around meetings in the workplace. If you are uh, wanting to get better at meetings, which most of us are, and most of us, you know, really didn't get the training on how to do meetings effectively like we should have at some point, Uh, or if we did, it was some pointers from someone. Uh, Mamie really does a brilliant job of helping leaders to frame meetings in an effective way. Uh, She's also the host of the Modern Manager podcast, a great compliment to this show, so you can check that out as well. But if you want to plan meetings that really get results and dive into the desired outcomes we talked about a bit today, episode 358 is a great compliment for you. And then finally, Priya mentioned the work of Edgar Schein. He was my guest back on episode 363 and talked about the path of humble leadership along with his son, Peter Schein. And that conversation is a very helpful one to you if you're looking to bring not only the privilege to influence, but also the power of humility into leadership as so many of you are seeking in your work. That's episode 363. You can get access to all of those past episodes just by going over to coachingforleaders.com. And if you have your free membership set up, you'll be able to log in, go to the episode library and search by topic for all of those past episodes. If you don't have your free membership set up, you can set that up on the homepage at coachingforleaders.com. It'll give you access to the entire episode library, my own personal library, the member cast, the free 10-day audio course, 10 ways to empower the people you lead and the weekly leadership guides coming to you on Wednesday with all of the resources from every episode. Again, your membership for that, all entirely free. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go. Have a wonderful week, and I look forward to our next conversation next Monday. Take care.